Welcome to the PCC Podcast, your place for CNS soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. In the next 30 minutes, I'll bring you up to date on the important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our latest issue. Let's get started. A new study involving patients in a naturalistic setting shows that nutritional management of depression with L-methylfolate helped reduce depressive symptoms and improved patients' well-being. L-methylfolate is the biologically active form of folate and the only form that can cross the blood-brain barrier to help regulate serotonin, dopamine, and norepinephrine. In this real-world patient experience study, 554 patients with depression of varying severity levels were invited to self-rate their depressive symptoms and other experiences while taking L-methylfolate, either alone or adjunctively, with an antidepressant, as prescribed by their physician and not part of any study protocol. After 12 weeks, patients reported significant improvements in depressive symptoms and work, home, and social functioning, with 67.9% of patients responding and 45.7% achieving remission. Medication satisfaction and compliance were also very high, with over 90% of patients reporting having taken every dose or nearly every dose. Real-world studies can be a useful source to both clinicians and patients in determining the proper therapy for depression management, and the results of this patient experience trial serve as a complement to other controlled studies demonstrating benefits of L-methylfolate in major depressive disorder. It is well established that both ADHD and bipolar disorder affect a large proportion of the population and significantly impact functionality. While ADHD has been found to be considerably comorbid with other disorders, its concomitance with bipolar disorder deserves special attention, as patients with both disorders tend to lead high-risk lives. Marin and colleagues looked at the clinical and functional outcomes in adult patients with bipolar disorder alone compared to those with bipolar disorder and concomitant ADHD. 50 patients with bipolar disorder were enrolled in the study following admission to a psychiatric unit during an acute relapse. The Mini International Neuropsychiatric Interview and the ADHD rating scale were used to screen for ADHD and bipolar disorder, and the Hamilton rating scale for depression, the Young Mania rating scale, and the Global Assessment of Function were used to assess clinical severity at baseline and at eight weeks. Thirteen subjects rated positive for ADHD, With regard to gender, age, length of hospitalization, and the severity of clinical and functional deterioration, no differences were found at baseline between the two groups. However, at eight weeks, those with ADHD did have lower general scores for depression. 
The researchers concluded that patients with bipolar disorder and concomitant ADHD were not more severely ill in the acute phase and did not have a poor outcome compared to those with bipolar disorder alone. Funding for this study was provided by a grant from Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, Canada. Total knee arthroplasty is an effective and widely used surgical treatment for osteoarthritis. However, a significant number of postoperative patients continue to experience pain and functional impairment. Marks and colleagues conducted a small study of the drug milnasopran in patients who continue to experience knee pain despite having an otherwise successful knee replacement. These patients continued to have knee pain a year or more after their replacement and were being seen at the Duke Orthopedic Surgery Clinic. Five patients were enrolled in the study and given milnasopran for 12 weeks at doses of 100 to 200 milligrams per day while investigators assessed their knee pain and function with a variety of measures. Overall, the patients experienced a reduction in knee pain and improvement in function. When individual patient data were reviewed, it appeared that four of the five patients had meaningful improvement in knee pain, although one of these patients chose to end the study early due to side effects. In light of the degree of improvement observed, the well-established efficacy of minasopran and other SNRIs in pain syndromes, and the frequent comorbidities of depressive and anxiety disorders, the authors conclude that well-powered, placebo-controlled studies of milnasopran in persistent pain after total knee arthroplasty were warranted. This study was sponsored by an investigator-initiated grant from Forest Laboratories. This review article explores epidemiology, clinical features, comorbidities, and treatment options for body dysmorphic disorder in different clinical settings. Body dysmorphic disorder is a relatively common psychiatric disorder characterized by excessive preoccupation with imagined defects in physical appearance that causes significant distress and impairment in functioning. Body dysmorphic disorder has a high level of comorbidity with anxiety disorders, depression, and social phobia, and a recent finding indicated genetic overlap between body dysmorphic disorder and obsessive-compulsive disorder. Patients with body dysmorphic disorder have poor quality of life and high rates of psychiatric hospitalization and suicidal ideations and attempts. These individuals usually consult dermatologists, family physicians, and cosmetic surgeons rather than psychiatrists. Current evidence suggests that SSRIs and cognitive behavioral therapy are often effective treatments. However, delayed diagnosis and lack of insight into the psychological nature of body dysmorphic disorder symptoms are barriers to effective treatment intervention. The authors conclude that collaboration between different specialties, such as primary care physicians, dermatologists, cosmetic surgeons, and psychiatrists, is required for better treatment outcome, 
and difficult-to-treat cases are better referred for psychiatric assessment and management. Previous studies suggest relationships between childhood trauma and pain in adulthood. Most of these studies have examined physical or sexual abuse in childhood. In this study, Sansone and colleagues examined five types of childhood trauma and their relationships to pain and pain catastrophizing in a primary care outpatient sample. All participants in this study were aged 18 years or older and were being seen for non-emergent medical care. 349 outpatients were approached and 243 agreed to participate and completed all study measures. As for childhood trauma, the researchers examined witnessing violence, physical neglect, emotional abuse, physical abuse, and sexual abuse. Pain levels were assessed using a visual analog scale in which participants were asked about their pain today, over the past month, and over the past year. Finally, all participants completed the pain catastrophizing scale, a measure of catastrophic thoughts and feelings about pain. In analyses examining simple correlations, Most of the trauma variables were statistically significantly related to pain assessments today, over the past month, and over the past year, as well as pain catastrophizing. In multivariate analyses, emotional abuse was the only trauma variable that uniquely predicted both pain and pain catastrophizing. Interestingly, Emotional abuse has not been extensively studied prior to this investigation. Findings in this study suggest that emotional abuse is a childhood factor worthy of additional investigation in the area of pain and pain catastrophizing. Williams syndrome is a rare genetic disorder characterized by specific cognitive and behavioral phenotypes, including varying levels of mental retardation. Strikingly, the affected individuals tend to be highly sociable, but in stark contrast to their high sociability, often exhibit elevated anxiety, phobia, ADHD, and related psychological features. Studies of the psychiatric phenotype in adults with Williams syndrome and management of their mental pathologies are lacking. In this article, the authors report the neuropsychiatric profiles of two adult patients with Williams syndrome who also have generalized anxiety disorder and characterize their anxiety profiles and the strategies that were adopted for pharmacologic intervention. Both patients were responsive to SSRIs, suggesting that the combination of SSRIs and low doses of antipsychotics is suitable treatment in these cases. The authors conclude that more detailed information with regard to treating and characterizing anxiety in Williams syndrome is needed for psychiatrists and neuropsychologists. Consideration of anxiety and frontal lobe affectations as basic symptoms in these patients could help professionals and caregivers in the detection of these symptoms and prevent treatments that potentiate psychopathologies in the long term. Moreover, 
treating anxiety properly might allow these patients to develop adequate responses to social stimuli and neuropsychological strategies. Patients with congestive heart failure have clinically significant depression at a rate of two to three times higher than in the general population. However, depression can be challenging to diagnose as patients with congestive heart failure often suffer from fatigue, insomnia, weight changes, and other neurovegetative symptoms that overlap with those of depression. In this article, the authors reviewed the prevalence, diagnosis, neurobiology, and treatment of depression associated with congestive heart failure. Particular attention was paid to the safety, efficacy, and tolerability of antidepressant medications commonly used to treat depression and how their side effect profiles impact the pathophysiology of congestive heart failure. Drug-drug interactions between antidepressant medications and medications used to treat congestive heart failure were also examined. Evidence reveals that both psychotherapeutic treatment and pharmacologic treatment are safe and effective in reducing depression severity in patients with cardiovascular disease. Collaborative care programs featuring interventions that work to improve adherence to medical and psychiatric treatments improve both cardiovascular disease and depression outcomes. And depression rating scales, such as the nine-item patient health questionnaire, should be used to monitor therapeutic efficacy. The Alzheimer's disease epidemic is here with about 5 million Americans currently afflicted. Because Alzheimer's disease is so prevalent, it is and will continue to be diagnosed and managed by primary care physicians. However, it cannot be managed by primary care physicians alone. Because the disease is chronic and progressive, lasting roughly 10 years and ending in death, a changing array of health care and related services requiring ongoing coordination must be provided for the patient and caregiver. In this concise, evidence-based review, the authors present a practical blueprint for the diagnosis and management of Alzheimer's disease in primary care. Using the most current guidelines and expert consensus opinion available, the authors summarize the core services to be provided, separating those that fall under the purview of the primary care physician from those that may be best provided by other professionals. They also discuss the role of the dementia specialist and provide an overview of research on the value of dementia care management teams, which they contend are critical to achieving quality of care that meets the needs of providers, patients, and caregivers. Editorial support in the development of this article was funded by ESI and Pfizer. Now we invite you to engage online in an interactive CME case study from the Banner Alzheimer's Institute. The Banner Alzheimer's Institute case conference is a weekly event in which physicians and staff discuss challenging cases of patients seen at the Institute Stead Family Memory Clinic. In this issue of the companion, we highlight the case of Ms. A, an 84-year-old woman with cognitive changes and worsening memory. 
She is increasingly repetitive with stories and statements and no longer able to manage her finances. Mild depressive symptoms are also reported. Does this patient have mild cognitive impairment, vascular dementia, or Alzheimer's disease? Visit us online at primarycarecompanion.com to answer questions about this patient case and find out how your colleagues who attended the weekly case conference responded in this instructive offering. Have you ever wondered which neuroimaging techniques can facilitate making a neuropsychiatric diagnosis? Have you been uncertain about the indications for and the risks of various neuroimaging modalities or been perplexed by which test to order first? If you have, then the case presentation and discussion in this issue's rounds from the general hospital should prove useful in your practice. The authors provide an in-depth overview of neuroimaging tests, including costs and associated risks, as well as guidance on appropriate test selection. The authors contend that an understanding of how structural and functional neuroimaging techniques work and what the risks are can help the clinician order these tests in a rational and cost-effective manner. And for patients presenting with cognitive, behavioral, or emotional symptoms, the use of neuroimaging can be of major relevance when certain conditions apply. In this issue of The Companion, be sure to read a timely position statement on the integration of psychiatric pharmacists into primary care practices to provide comprehensive medication management as part of an integrated healthcare team. The authors contend that such integration can improve access to care, improve quality of care, decrease costs, and improve provider and patient satisfaction for patients with both serious mental illnesses and chronic medical disorders. This issue also includes a new entry in the psychotherapy casebook, written by a patient navigating life changes as he battles cancer. Please visit us online at primarycarecompanion.com for new postings, including case reports, the opportunity for continuing medical education credit, and special web-based interactive content. Thanks for joining me for this summary of offerings in our current issue of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me for the next installment of the PCC podcast, your place for CNS soundbites.